Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back for another episode of Revolution Recap as the Revolution are coming off a 3-3 draw at Orlando City. Uh, the Revolution got off to a 2-0 lead earlier in this one with Juan Agodelo and Christian Pena both scoring in the 7th and 18th minute, uh, but gave up a goal in the 45th minute through Dom Dwyer and then an- another set-piece goal in the 71st minute uh, from Tarek tied it up for Orlando City. Uh, Bunbury, came, who actually came off the bench in this one, uh, ending a start streak for him, um, scored in the 76th minute to put the Revolution back in the lead with a very nice goal, uh, only for the Revolution to give up yet another set-piece goal to Scott Suter in the 93rd minute uh, as they ended up tying this one 3-3, three to three, and then there was you know, plenty of shoving and fighting after that that uh, led to a red card to Orlando City. But uh, there was plenty of controversy in this game before that. Um, and before we jump into breaking down the, the game, I did want to get out of the way the controversial non-calls that happened in this game. The first one being uh, shortly before the, the set piece that led to Juan Aguadelo's goal, um, Victor Gyro pulled down Christian Pena from behind. And what looked like he was the last man back uh, and you know, red card situation because it wasn't in the box. They weren't getting a penalty kick out of it and got away with only a yellow card. Um, so let's let's just start with that one, Greg. Did you think that was a red card? Because to me, that looked you know pretty obvious, and I was a little bit surprised that they didn't actually take a second look at it. Not that I thought a second look was necessary because it was pretty clear that Pania was through the defense if he hadn't been grabbed. Yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, I think I, I was tweeting from the Revolution Recap account yesterday during the game, and I, I pretty much said that you know if someone was to ask me what the definition of a red card is, I would show them that play. I mean, Pania was clearly on clearly on a breakaway, and he was pulled down from behind. It was a pretty clear foul. Um, I mean, the referee gave out a yellow. I'm not, I, I'm not totally sure why it wasn't called a red, and I'm not sure why it wasn't reviewed. That seems like a pretty clear situation where you would go to the video review. So um, very frustrating because that would have totally changed the entire landscape of the game um, if Orlando had a, a defender taken out in the first few minutes of the game. But, um, you know, it's it's not really an excuse because the Revs certainly went up and, and uh, they, they had complete control of the game regardless. But um, if Orlando was down a man as they should have been, it, it would have totally changed the game overall. Um, and I, I also will say that uh, the, the foul on Fagundes, I think it was a foul. I think that wasn't as clear cut as the uh, potential red card in the opening minutes of the game. But again, I, I don't understand what the reasoning is to why that doesn't go to video review. Uh, I'm not sure why a skirmish after the game to see who who gets a red card, go, which is pretty much inconsequential at that point, goes to video review in the 95th minute. But two massive calls in the first half aren't double checked it very confusing to me yeah i'm with you on that and for me the, the fagundas one was was definitely less clear cut um i'm kind of 50 50 on the whole thing i didn't see a replay that definitively made me go one way or the other i did think fagundas looked like he went down you know somewhat easily there was certainly contact there but i i couldn't live with that being a non-call but the the red card to me was was so blatantly obvious and would have had such an impact on the game um but i don't want to spend all day talking about those calls because i think we're, we're you know, both in agreement there um at the end of the day the revolution had a two nothing lead in this game that they blew and then a three two lead late in this game that they blew um so yes you can blame the referees for this not being an easier victory for the revolution but you can't blame them for their you know, defensive ineptitude at at, at times uh, and this one, and we can you know break down some of those goals later. But before before we do, uh, let's just jump into takeaways. What, what was your main takeaway from from this game that you know played out a lot similar to some of the other games we've seen this year? 
Uh, well, and before I, I just want to add one more point on before I get to my takeaway, but I got to say last night was a all time great Paul Mariner uh, commentary game. He was just uh, losing his mind towards the end of the game, asking where was video review in the first half. So uh, really enjoyed his commentary in the closing minutes of that game. He seemed to be uh, speaking for all Revolution fans out there. But uh, my, my takeaway was that I, I really actually enjoyed the uh, lineup changes that um, Br- uh, Brad Friedel made. Uh, I think playing Fagundes as a false nine at first when the lineup came out, I thought that would be a bit of an awkward fix. But uh, the offense was really fluid and really passing the ball uh, incredibly well in the first half. Um, Orlando's defense is nothing to write home about. Uh, but they were creating a lot of chances. Uh, they got even Scott Caldwell and Luis Caicedo were involved in the offense. I know for, uh, Pania had a great pass to Caicedo that was almost uh, – it was a through ball into the box that Caicedo just missed. Uh, Caldwell had a nice play where he danced around the keeper, but the ball was cleared off the line. Um, you know, everyone on that offensive side of the ball seemed to be contributing. Even Brandon Mai, who started at left back, we'll talk about him a little bit more later. Um, you know, he, he was getting up and involved in the press, uh, and he and uh, Pania actually trapped the defender that made that poor pass to Caicedo, which led to the turnover, which led to the Pania uh, breakaway and second goal for the Revs. Um, just everything seemed to be clicking, and I, I think that kind of new system, it was a bit of a different look, and, and obviously whenever there are widespread changes in the lineup, uh, it makes your head scratch, but uh, the, Revs, the Revs looked very prepared uh, for that system, and uh, I wouldn't mind seeing it again if they want to do that. I, I think that worked out very, very well. Yeah, I know, and, and that, that's the point that I want to talk about too is how how well the good the offense looked in this one. Um, and you know, I mentioned during the week if you follow me on Twitter how long it had been since you know, it'd been over well over a month since Bunbury, Aguadelo, or anyone that's you know listed as a forward on the Revolution roster had actually finished it finished off a goal. Um, so it was great to see Aguadelo, you know, albeit on a, at a strange long throw and play uh, score and get himself on the score sheet. I think he, I think it was since March since he had scored, if, if that's right. <laughs> I'm trying to recall. And Bunbury hadn't scored since June, and he'd you know been done well for the Revolution, been in a hot streak. Um, so it was nice to see him come off the bench and provide a spark. And of course, Pena, you know, always dangerous for the Revolution, getting another goal and uh, hitting the crossbar, having an opportunity for for a second. Um, so it was great to see the offense clicking really well. But like you said, the the Orlando City defense is not something to write home about. Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna put up three goals against the team, it's not too surprising that it came against Orlando. Um, p- pathetic performance by their defense at times in this one with the, the turnovers that, that led to revolution chances, um, the defending on that throw-in, uh, the goalkeeper cheating on that too that kind of made it easier for, for Aguadelo to score. Um, and then, you know, Bunbury, great great bit of skill from him to, to get open for that goal that he scored. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of negatives for this game, and I think those will come out when we start talking about the goals. But um, I, I think it was a very positive performance for the offense because they could have scored a, a lot more. And, you know, you mentioned Caicedo with that chance, Cabo with the great chance as well that you mentioned. Um, I thought he had a good game offensively. And I think we talked about it a few weeks ago when we were talking about, you know, why wasn't Caldo playing more that um, Friedel, I think it was Brian that said Friedel seems to view him more as an offensive threat than maybe Jay Heaps did. And he did play more of him as, as an attacking mid in college. Uh, but he, you know, was a good offensive threat in this in this game. And even just looking at chances created, you know, Fagundes had a key pass. Pania had three. Caldwell had one. Caicedo had one. Agodelo had one. Zahibo had one. Brandon Bai had one. So all these guys were getting involved in the offense. And and for all the the faults that we're going to talk about in this game, it was great to see the the offense perform at that level. And you know, they're going to need it if they're going to get some results on the road because you know, as we'll talk about, their defense still has a lot of issues. Um, and with that, I kind of want to just break down the the goals that we saw them concede in this game. 
the first one being the, the Dom Dwyer goal. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like it was, it was Annie Baba and Dom Dwyer wrestling to, to get open, and Dom Dwyer uh, kind of got the beat on him there. And, and yes, Annie Baba, you know, still put pressure on him, but it was a little bit disappointing. I mean, you know, Dom Dwyer is a strong guy to see uh, him kind of get the, the edge in such a situation against a center back like, like Annie Baba. What, what did you think on that play? Yeah, I, I kind of have the same takeaways as you. Um, I think Annie Baba, for the most part, is a, you know, MLS starting uh, or third center back quality defender. Uh, I think the more and more we see of him this season, we see him get a little bit more and more exposed. Not not totally exposed, not egregiously exposed, but just gives a little bit too much space. And I, I think that's exactly what happened there with Dwyer, where Dwyer, Dwyer uh, you know, as I say, kind of forced enough room and and uh, ha- had enough space to get a clean touch on the ball that Matt Turner really could not do anything about on that first goal. Um, not not a whole lot you can do. Uh, De La May didn't really close down the cross probably as well as he could have uh, or as well as we have seen before. Um, but I, I think overall uh, that, that one play was a, a bit of a poor play by Annie Baba. I, I will note, though, before you kind of get into this a little bit, uh, I do think Annie Baba bailed out De La May a couple times. I think De La May, between him and Annie Baba, was the weaker of the two defenders. There were a couple through balls that didn't result in goals uh, early in the first half that, that uh, were straight to Dwyer that De La May seemed to be pretty beat on. So. Um, and I think even on one of them, Annie Baba came over and, and blocked the shot from Dwyer. So um, I think Annie Baba had a okay game. I think De La Maya had a b- below average game. But um, certainly on that one play, if we're just going to be highlighting the goals, um, Annie Baba didn't look that great on that play. Yeah, and if we step to the next goal, then uh, <laughs> we can start <laughs> off by calling out De La Maya for a completely unnecessary foul. Um, in which Pino, I think his back was the goal and he was, you know, not in a dangerous position and, and De La Maya kind of barreled him over, um, which then led to the set piece that Orlando scored off of. You know, of course, it still could have been prevented. Uh, on this one, Turek, I believe, was being marked by Zahibo. That's what it looked like to me. And Zahibo, you know, stuck out his hands to try to grab him and stop him and completely failed. And then Zahibo just stood there, um, which is why Turek ran into the box completely unmarked because uh, Zahibo didn't follow him. He tried to grab him and hold him and failed. Uh, so lots of blame to go around on, on that one. Uh, but that was an, another disappointing play from the revolution. Uh, what did you see on that one? Yeah, I, I mean, I saw what you saw as well. Um, it was a bit unlucky, too. I, I think I watched the replay a couple more times. And, um, you know, <laughs> really unfortunate that, you know, Matt Turner kind of seemed surprised and kind of tipped that ball into his own net. Um, but, yeah, the marking was extremely poor on that one. Um, I, I wonder, because it seems like every new week we talk about a new set piece and someone's totally lost from their marker. Um, I, I'm not sure what it is with this team and set pieces, and that will, will lead into our third goal, I know as well. But um, it, it seems like defending set pieces is, is a major, major weakness of this team. And pretty much any free kick on the offensive half by a Revs opponent feels like a scoring chance. It's almost like you can see it coming a mile away. So, um, I mean, I, I know it was a Matt Turner own goal, but uh, that, that was a wide open header that was really just given to Orlando on that play. And, um, you know, I, as I say, I know it was tipped in, but the Revs deserve to be scored on. Uh, and I'm really scared with this team's ability to uh, not be able to defend set pieces. I, I can't say it any better than that. And this time it was the Hebo, but sometimes it's Farrell. Sometimes it's Anibaba. I mean, it, it just always seems like there's someone breaking free. And a lot of times it results in goals. Yeah, and that's a great point because we can call out Zahibo here, um, or, or you can call it the foul. But it, it seems like every other every game, it's somebody making an error and, and losing their mark. And you know, it's happened so often that you have to assume. And I mean, from Friel's comments, it's, I, I'm sure they keep working on it in practice. But you know, how much blame should should Friel get for this team continuously, you know, making mistakes on set pieces at this point in the season? Because, like you said, it's not just one guy. 
No, you're, you're right. And the other thing, too, is they have a lot of aggressive players. Like, I know Claude Dialna might not be back in the A-team anytime soon, but uh, he's certainly an aggressive player. Zahibo makes a lot of aggressive plays. In this case, De La Maya made the foul. Um, I think I think De La Maya also made the foul towards the end of the game, although that was that was really not a foul. But uh, point being is that these defenders are a little bit aggressive, and, and they do commit a lot of fouls. So um, you, you think this team will be a little bit more uh, prepped for set pieces. I'm sure Brad Friedel will make that a uh, key point in training this next week or so because – if they can defend set pieces, they take three points from that game fairly easily. Um, I'm not sure how much blame goes to Friedel or the players overall, uh, but I mean, it's certainly if, if Brad Friedel is not practicing defending set pieces, then I would say a lot of blame goes to him because it's just inexcusable at this point. Yeah, I think it might have actually been Casado that got called for the last fall. I'm not sure. I'd have to check on it that one. Been. But either either way, I agree that was a, a little bit weaker. Although I think he might have clipped him, so I'm not, you know debatable. Um, it, yeah. It was a very weak foul. It, regardless of who made it, it really should not have been called a foul. Um, I, I think the, the guy just kind of went down with his back uh, to goal and, and he was kind of facing the sideline. And so yeah, it, it really I, was, was not a foul. I, I don't mean to assign blame on that play because that was really just the referee's poor call. That time. Well, it was it was by and Casado. And I, I again, yeah. I don't think we saw good enough replay on, on TV. I think I think Casado might have clipped him to trip him. But I, I, again, I don't think this was as egregious as the De La Mayo one. Um, you know, those type of plays happen in soccer, whether or not it was a foul. So I won't, I won't, I won't harp on that one too much. Um, but again, more bad set piece marking on, on that last goal. Um, and I think Turner deserves some of the blame too, for getting, you know, beaten at at the near post a a bit, Bobby Shuttleworth-esque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I, it's it's unfortunate to make that uh, comparison too. But it was it was a ball that Turner could have gotten to, and I think we've seen him get to before. Um, he got a hand on it; he just wasn't able to push it away enough. Um, yeah, there, not a lot I can say on that one, other than you know another missed marking and, and another play where I think Matt Turner uh, he he had a very below average game, and I, I, I think as the season goes on, he's kind of being brought down to earth, but. Um, he he definitely could have done a little bit more with that one, and um, you know it's kind of a tough play to get on get on someone's case for. But as you say, that that's something that when Bobby Shuttleworth was here, kind of drove us nuts about not defending the near post, and not 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 you know keeping balls out of there. And you know, uh, as I say, probably could have been a, a save he could have gotten to, uh, but a lot of a lot of blame goes to um, missing that marker and again giving up a really solid scoring chance on that set piece. Well, and, and like you said, a below average game from from Matt Turner. A lot of fans, it seemed like, were really going out at him after the game on Twitter. Um, yeah. You know, too harsh. What, what did you think? Again, what, how much blame does he get for this loss? And and you know, his recent performances maybe haven't been up to par to the beginning of the season. Um, is it is it too soon to hit the panic button with Matt Turner? Yeah, and and I understand some people might think that it's time to uh, maybe go with Brad Knighton, who has been a little bit steadier. He seems to be like the steady backup veteran. Uh, I I don't think that's much of an improvement compared to Matt Turner. I think this is he he's in a bit of a rut stretch, but uh, he did make a save on a Dom Dwyer breakaway uh, early in the game. Uh, he he kind of charged out and got in good position and kind of thwarted that uh, breakaway pretty easily. Uh, there was also uh, another shot to his left that he made a diving save for. So um, I, I do think there were some positives for Matt Turner, but um, also in addition to that own goal, in addition to the third goal where um, he, he didn't push it away strongly enough, um, there was another play where a cross came in and he kind of bobbled the rebound. Um, and luckily it didn't result in a goal for Orlando, but um, ultimately 
Sorry, I, I don't know if you can hear my cat meowing in the background. I apologize for that distraction. <laughs> Jasper making his uh, first ever appearance on Revolution Recap is making me lose my place. I mean, we, we don't have our third co-host, so we, had, we needed somebody I, I know, to, to Brian, step up. We need to bring in, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, sorry, just ignore that, folks. Uh, but yeah, Matt Turner did not have the best game. Uh, he he kind of bobbled that that cross in, and he just seemed overall kind of shaky. He just didn't see him up to the task yesterday, and... Um, I don't think we're going to get much better performances from Brad Knighton or certainly Cody Cropper. Um, I think we've just been kind of spoiled with uh, the greatness of Matt Turner that we just kind of expect amazing things. And last night we just didn't get it. I mean, I honestly thought he looked a little bit nervous in this game um, with with the way he, some of his saves were, the, the inability to hold the ball. His distribution uh, wasn't as good as it normally was. He had a couple of turnovers that you know could have led to something that I think maybe we're, he was lucky didn't um, from his distribution. So I, I don't know. Is, would you agree that he looked a little bit nervous in this one? And, you know, yes, it's a tough place to play in Orlando, and he's you know really you know, sort of a rookie with as far as you know making starts in MLS. Um, but we are a decent number of games into the season at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really question his makeup or, you know, his, his mentality at all. He's never seemed to be someone that um, gets nervous or anything like that. But it seemed like yesterday he was just a little bit off. He, he kind of seemed to make mistakes that we just don't typically see from him. Um, and I, I don't mean to I don't mean to be critical. I, I think we just expect him to have a really, really solid uh, performance as a goalkeeper and yesterday he just didn't have one I mean it's kind of plain to say uh, I, I think yesterday though was the exception and not the rule so um, yeah I mean I don't know if he was nervous but he, he didn't seem to have the um, best game uh, that that we saw and maybe that was his mentality maybe he wasn't feeling well or something like that maybe he was just out of the game a little bit um, but uh, I, I don't expect that to be uh, the norm going forward and I, and I still don't think he should be we should go to Brad Knight and just yet Maybe if he has games like that for the next three or four weeks um, and the Revs' playoff position gets a little bit more rockier, I certainly could see uh, making that decision to go to Knighton. Uh, but overall, I, he hasn't made any other than the own goal. And uh, you know, as I say, a, a couple other slip-ups uh, the other day. He Over the, se- the course of the season, he really hasn't had many terrible, terrible errors. So, Yeah, and to, to add to your earlier point, my whole thoughts on whether or not they should you know, panic at this point is, is is no, because what we've seen from Matt Turner at the beginning of the year in particular is that you know, he's got a pretty high ceiling. He's made some fantastic saves that have kept the revolution in games. You know, you mentioned the saves in this game that he made that were, you know, solid and helped out the team. So yes, he made some egregious errors, I would say, in this one. Um, and, you know, in recent weeks, he's made a few more errors than we're used to seeing um, from Matt Turner. But to me, he's proven from his play earlier in the year that he's got a much higher ceiling um, than a Brad Knight. And, and, you know, maybe it's too soon to say that with Cody Cropper, but I think from what we saw last year, it looks like he's got a higher ceiling than, than Cody Cropper as well. And, you know, to have a goalkeeper as your head coach with the experience of Brad Friedel and see Cody Cropper out of the 18, um, I would tend to think that, you know, if there's any position that Brad Friedel knows, it's goalkeeper. So if, to see him out of the 18, I don't think he's going to be the option. Um, so I, I think Brad Knighton maybe has a, a you know higher floor than Matt Turner just because he's been around the league longer and been more consistent. But, um, you know, I'm still on board the idea of, of riding with Matt Turner, the, the younger guy that's that's shown what he's capable of at times this year, even if the play hasn't been there. Um, but with that, I did want to jump into some of the, the lineup changes that you touched upon earlier. Um, Claude Dielma didn't even make the 18 for this one, and Brandon Bayh got to start at left back. You know, we talked about this two weeks ago that Dielma, you know, had been really poor lately. Uh, Somi, obviously, also in the doghouse with some poor play. Um, what did you think of, of that sub, and what do you think of Bayh's performance? 
Uh, wait, sorry, which sub? We're talking what, what, about? I mean, sorry, what, what do you think of Brandon Bay getting inserted into the starting lineup? Oh, oh, uh, yes. And what do you think of his performance? Uh, obviously, interesting, too, to see Dionne not even in the 18. Yeah, I was going to say, I was surprised to see Dionne not in the 18, just because he can give you, he can play left back or center back. So you could move him in from the, you know, if someone was to go out, if someone was to get hurt, uh, you know, De La Mayor or Anibaba was to go down, you don't need to move Farrell in from right back into center back. And then you'd be stuck with Somi and uh, Bai and Farrell on the back line. So I, I think strategically, we, you, you know, you can make an argument that even though Claude Delna has struggled in recent weeks, um, you know, he, he probably should get the spot on the bench as opposed to Somi. Um, but I think in this game, too, they, they really value speed along on left back. Uh, they really want players to get get up the field and, and help in the press. And Brandon Bay was doing that. Um, and not only that, but I, I think we saw Brandon Bay make some really solid defensive plays and, and kind of hold his own. Um, and I also did notice, too, if you look at kind of the passing charts um, and kind of where teams possess the ball, I, I think Orlando had something like 50% of their possession was down the left side of the, the field. So they were really attacking Farrell and De La May as opposed to any Baba and Brandon Bay, which I think kind of goes to speak that, you know, once you see Brandon Bay playing left back, you know, if you really saw him as that strongly of a defensive liability, you'd kind of go at him. And, and I, I think he really held his own throughout that game. So, um, you know, I, I was a little bit unsure of it at first. Um, and, you know, the other thing, too, is we've seen Brandon Bay play right back and kind of get up and make those uh, kind of crosses into the box. He didn't do that as much yesterday, um, but he certainly was able to uh, provide a little bit of speed. Um, and, and he didn't really make any mistakes. It was a really solid performance. I expect him to play left back uh, from now on because it's kind of the first time we've seen um, a Revs left back have a really solid performance, maybe since Chris Tierney's gone down. So, um, yeah, I, positive marks for Brandon Bay in that case. Yeah, I'm in agreement with you. And um, one of the things that we heard before the game, and I think it was Jeff Lemieux that originally tweeted it, is that they thought that it was going to be Andrew Farrell playying left back. So it was interesting when it was Brandon By playing left back. And, you know, I had talked, I had a, con- had a conversation on Twitter with um, Seth from the Best Bent Musket about, you know, how sometimes it can be better to have a guy like a Farrell or, as we saw in the past, Kevin Olsen move over to left back because they're, you know, offensive limitations. Um, they're more apt to stay back and focus on defense, which they're better at and have to play simpler going forward. And with Brandon By, you know, if few of the times we've seen him play on the right his passing has been you know really poor 50 percent um you know 54 against minnesota when he played right back in that game uh 37.9 against the columbus crew when he started and played 90 minutes at right back in that game um so it, you know we didn't see Farrell move over left back we saw brandon by play at left back and he passed at 70.6 percent and you know played a bit simpler and he did get that assist on the throw in um uh, the nice long throw in too um but you know w- when you have a guy that maybe is not you know, 100% up to speed at MLS yet as a rookie that still needs more time to grow. Um, forcing them to play on the side of their weaker foot can make them play a bit simpler, and I thought that worked here. And, you know, I agree with you. I, I'm not 100% sold on Brandon By that he's the long-term solution to left back, certainly from this this one game, but I thought he played decent enough where, you know, he should be the guy to at least the next game, you know, get the start at left back again over Dionne and Somi because, you know, certainly they've done nothing in recent weeks uh, to, to, to say otherwise. Um, but, you know, when you mentioned the bench, not even just, you know, putting in Dialna for Somi, you know, I, another thing I saw somebody say on Twitter, which I agreed with, is, you know, if, if you're Brad Friedel, who, in what situation, when you have a Teal Bunbury on the bench, a Christian Namath on the bench, do you see Brian Wright coming into this game? And why does it make sense to have him there over Dielma? Uh, I don't know. Am I missing something? Or when you have those substitute options, doesn't it seem like it would make more sense to have another defensive option over Brian Wright? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. It doesn't make any sense for Brian Wright to be there. Um, there was no situation in which Brian Wright was coming to that game. I, I 
I can't see a situation in which he would have come into that game unless there was numerous injuries to players at the same position. Um, and not just, you know, Dielna, but I mean, Kellen Rowe, I mean, if if they needed an offensive spark towards the end of the game, Christian Namath and Teal Bunbury were your two options. You know, you'd put in Bunbury, which we, you saw them do. But after that, is is you do trust Namath more than Kellen Rowe in the midfield? I, I didn't really understand that those lineup choices um it, it seems to me like he's sending a message of some sort that your your spot is not given it is earned um and certainly with claude Dielna, you, you know he's made some poor mistakes um, brad friel has called him out in that uh and you know he's gone from uh captain's armband to outside of the 18 very very quickly uh, and i think uh, friel is showing that if you kind of uh, you know, lose your focus and lose your mentality, um, you know, you're going to be dropped. So I, I totally get that one. I, and, and the other thing, too, is that they have Somi, they have Bai. Um, you know, they're not the best options at left back, but you do have options up there. Um, Kellen Rowe being dropped altogether, and as you say, Brand, uh, Brian Wright being included, I, I just don't understand that at all. Um, I, 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 I think it's just he's he's sending a message. And, and when he was asked, too, if there are any injuries or anything like that, uh, Friel just flat out said there's no injuries whatsoever. So it seems to me that we're just not going to be seeing Kellen Rowe and Claude Dielna anymore. I, I, I think Brad Friel might just be saying, um, you know, uh, these are the players that are going to be a part of the team going forward and the other guys aren't. That, that's the only explanation I can think of. Yeah, no, the, the first thought that came into my head when I saw this lineup is, you know, is there a knock to one of these guys that we didn't hear about? So it was very interesting to see after the game when, when Friedel was asked whether either of those guys had any injuries that we weren't aware of and, you know, flat out said no. Um, so, so, yeah, that, that was interesting. And the, the last uh, big change in this one um, you alluded to earlier, Diego Funos was playing as the false nine. Till Bunbury went to the bench. Um, and Scott Caldwell, who we talked a bit about last week as maybe being a guy that could come in. You know, I thought he might come in for Zahibo for some of Zahibo's underwhelming performances lately. Uh, but it, it was it was. Uh, Caldwell coming in for Bunbury and then Fagundes playing more of a false nine role. What were your thoughts on that change? So Diego Fagundes didn't have the best game of his season, uh, but I think overall kind of changing that entire lineup and playing Caicedo, Caldwell, and Zahibo, um, I think it lets Zahibo kind of play back a little bit more and not have to go forward that much. Uh, and I, I think even though he, he was responsible for the second goal or partially responsible for the second goal, however you want to put it, uh, I, I think overall I kind of like him kind of in that role where uh, he's playing back, he's helping the defense, which obviously needs a little bit of help. And the other thing too is I, I think uh, Caldwell and Caicedo can contribute on offense, as we said, and I, I think as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, they're able to push up. Um, I do think that, you know, I think it's a little harsh moving Bunbury to the bench, but as we talked about earlier, he he hasn't been scoring goals. Um, so I, I really like that decision to play Fagundes up top. Um, I think, as I say, he, he, statistically, he did not have the uh, most thrilling game overall, but um, I, I think by putting him as the false nine, everyone else around him played very, very well. Um, and Christian Pena had some great passes uh, throughout the game. So um, overall, there's not a whole lot of complaints. I don't know if it's the best way to utilize Diego Fagundes, but um, I certainly think it worked out overall. Yeah, I, I liked what we saw from Caldwell uh, offensively in this one and him getting involved in the attack. Um, the other thing I'll say is, you know, I've been hitting on Zahibo for his poor passing in, in recent weeks. Um, he had his best passing game since March 
uh, as a starter with 83.3% passing. So that was good to see from him. I also, I still don't think he had the best game defensively. We talked about the, you know, the, the goal that he could have done more on. Um, but tracking back in general, I think has you know, been a bit of an issue for him, but he led the team in touches with 57. So a lot more involved. Um, I, it was closer to the Zahibo that we saw earlier in the season. I thought where you know, he was actually helping out the team and, and putting in some good performances. Maybe the all-star game gave him a boost in confidence that he needed. Um, but I, I did think he played a bit better. Sato, I thought had another good game. Um, in that central midfield role. And, and Juan Aguadello, um, I thought, you know, given the false nine at Fagundes, he had an opportunity to move forward a bit more uh, mm. and, and did well doing that. And I, I thought he had one of his better games of the season uh, with a goal and assist as well. So I, I liked it. And I like Teal Bunbury coming off the bench. You know, he's a guy with a lot of speed that can cause a lot of problems to a team late in the game. So seeing him coming in the 73rd minute, uh, I'm sure is not something that uh, defenders are too happy about. Um, you know, if if they can find a way to to keep scoring with with Bunbury on the bench, and if Aguadello can actually step up and, and score more and have performances more like he did today, um, is is that something that you think might be a, a long term option going forward? Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea. I know when uh, at the beginning of the season, I I was advocating for Teal Bunbury to come off of the bench because he does give you a speed option when the, your defender's legs are tired, and I think we saw him, you know, in the second minute of the game making that. Uh, nice little crossover play and goal I made an I- immediate impact right off the bench. Um, you know, I, I think he's kind of a super sub and I think he certainly, you know, you can argue that he should be in the starting lineup, uh, but I think he can really burn a lot of defenders late in the game with 20, 25 minutes in the game left a game. Uh, you know, um, I think he's been coming off more and more um, when he does start. And, and as I say, if he, if he's not scoring goals, I don't see the, argument against doing a false nine i'll put it that way where you know if teal bunbury is kind of playing up top uh and is really just there to you know finish services um i I think a a false nine is kind of a better system if he's you know in a bit of a scoring drought because then he's just kind of up top not contributing anything Um, and so this way you can do a false nine uh you can kind of get everyone involved everyone breaking into the box um and then as i say 20 25 minutes left you can bring on teal bunbury and kind of have him blow by defenders uh, and, and maybe get that finish that uh, you kind of expect from him uh, as we've been expecting throughout the season. So, um, yeah, I, I think if they can afford to bring him off the bench, uh, that is certainly a great luxury to have. I, I don't know if it's a long-term solution because, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, we've seen Brad Friedel kind of mix it up all the time, and maybe he's not too, too happy with the results of this game. Uh, I know offensively they were clicking really early on, but halftime he kind of said that, They'd kind of stopped passing about 40 minutes in. Um, you know, I know Bradfield kind of knocks them when they, you know, their legs kind of seem to get tired and they're not moving the ball as much. Um, maybe he doesn't think it's as sustainable throughout the rest of the season, and maybe we see Bunbury inserted back in the lineup at some point. Um, either way, I think we're going to see Teal Bunbury get his minutes. Uh, but you know, if if you're asking me, yeah, I, I think Teal Bunbury is a great weapon off the bench, uh, and it's not because he deserves to be removed from the starting lineup, but just that I, I think he can really, really burn defenders. Uh, towards the end of the game uh, if he comes in fresh. And I think the the only starter we didn't talk about in this game, and I wanted to just mention briefly, was Andrew Farrell, who had the second lowest rating of any Rev starter, according to who scored, uh, completed just 50% of his passes, um, was tied for the lead in dispossessions at, at three and unsuccessful touches at two. Um, I didn't think he was particularly at fault for, for any of the goals, but offensively, I, I, again, I didn't think he had the, the best effort um any thoughts on his performance uh actually i gotta admit you caught me off guard i, I didn't know that I, I 
he kind of had a game, a very quiet game. Um, as I mentioned, you know, uh, Orlando seemed to be moving the ball down the left flank. So, I mean, maybe that was a point of attack they wanted to go at and maybe it was successful. But I don't remember him doing anything really poor. Um, I will say it's interesting because oh, he was actually third on the team with 46 touches. But I agree he wasn't the the most noticeable player out there, despite, you know, in, in theory, having a having a decent amount of the ball. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, and the other thing, too, that I, I did notice, I wasn't really going to bring it up because I didn't think it was really noteworthy, but uh, Andrew Farrell, we've seen him kind of push up throughout the season and kind of get on the offensive side and make some passes. We've talked about how he's improved passing the ball. Um, I guess with, with Brandon By, he seemed to be the one pushing up, even though he wasn't really passing and crossing the ball like we've seen him, uh, because as you mentioned, he was playing left back. He was using his weaker foot. He was kind of a little more um, contained and, and kind of just passing the ball off and, and not doing a lot of overlapping runs. But, um, you know, Andrew Farrell, we didn't see him go up that much either. He kind of seemed contained on the defensive half uh, side of the ball, which is fine. N- nothing wrong with that. And he, but, um, yeah, nothing nothing. I don't remember him making any egregious mistakes yesterday. I thought he kind of had an average game. Um, I'm trying to think back. I don't think he had any responsibility on the uh, two goals. I know the second, the first goal was across from the um, the right side. Yeah. So that was kind of his area. But if I remember correctly, he was guarding someone who passed the ball, who then crossed it in. I don't think he was um, guarding anyone at the time. So I, I, yeah, I kind of surprised with those stats. And and then let's jump to the newcomers, one of whom played in this game, um, who was signed the week we were off, Christ, Christian Machado, uh, the Bolivian international. He got, you know, came in at the 86 minutes, so not too much of a time to make an impression. Um, I, I don't think he did anything noteworthy in this game, so it certainly, certainly it's far too soon to, to make any judgment calls um, on there. But, it, you know, it, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. That was a signing that kind of perplexed me a bit. Um, because when you look at undersized central midfielders on the Revolution, there's no shortage of them. You know, Caldwell, Casado, all these guys five seven to you know, to five eight that kind of play the same role, and even even Kellen Rowe, who at time has played there. Um, I'm really not sure what need Machado fills. You know, in this game, given who was on the bench, given there was no Rowe, given that you know you started Casado, Caldwell, uh, and Zahibo all together, which I'm not sure you're going to be doing too frequently. Um, you know, there was an opportunity for him to come on as kind of being the closer to, to close things out. And obviously that didn't work out. But, uh, you know, what do you think the Revs are going to get out of Christian Machado? And does the signing make any sense to you as far as, you know, what positions they need to bring in in this transfer window? Yeah, I, I don't have a whole lot of um, uh, the Machado signing. If, if Other than goalkeeper, I don't know if there is a position that the Revs needed less to address than uh, defensive midfield. Um, and as you say, yeah, he's perfectly in the mold of Caicedo and Caldwell, but I'm not sure if he kind of beats them. I know the Revolution have said they're not going to bring in anyone who, um, who who won't start or who won't take minutes, but um, I, Machado seems to be a bench piece at best. Now, if you're going to do a false nine and play Caldwell, Caicedo, and Zahibo all at once, uh, that does kind of make sense that you need someone in that Caicedo Caldwell mold that might need, you know need to come in in the case of injury or yellow card or something like that. Um, but uh, sorry, Sean, what was your question? I'm sorry, I got a little bit on a rant there. No, I think you were kind of answering it. it was just you know what what position is this guy filling and why does this transfer yeah. make sense? <laughs> I mean, the the way it makes sense really is that I think this is just a depth signing, and I know he doesn't take an international roster spot. So the way I kind of see it is he's coming from a you know the the Bolivian league. I can't imagine his price tag is too expensive. He came in on a free transfer and he's not taking an international roster spot. So um, I think this might be. 
signing kind of out of convenience and to fill the bench. I know a lot of people have, um, you know, expressed their disdain for the revolution, kind of having open roster spots. And I think this is the revolution just filling in one. Um, I, I don't see a lot of downside to this uh, signing. Uh, I, I don't think I'm not expecting him to come in and change the entire landscape of the team. Um, but I, I as I say, if they're going to play with a false nine, uh, certainly having someone with his skills uh, is good to have. Yeah, and let's jump to the the other signing that they made this past week. Uh, Michael Mancini, the center back from Nottingham Forest, um, who was actually the captain of Nottingham Forest for most of this past season playing in the English Championship, um, but it seemed to have lost his starting spot towards the end of the year. Uh, he mostly played center back. He had two games in which he played right back, um, I believe in which their left back was, was out, and they moved Eric Lehigh over from right back to left back, which tells me that you know this guy is it's not going to be really a left back option based on you know, the team shuffling around their whole lineup just to, to make sure he doesn't play there um, when they've gotten into those situations. Uh, but, you know, you talked about earlier about Jalen and Ibaba. Obviously, Dielna's in the doghouse. Um, but Anibaba's play, his, his errors have been a bit exposed lately. Um, you mentioned in this game that De La Mayo was a bit subpar. Uh, you know, obviously a very experienced guy, 30 years old, not too old yet, not to the point where, you know, he's past his prime. Um, and a guy that's played a, a lot of minutes in the English Championship, which is, you know, pretty high level. Um, what do you think of this signing? And, and, you know, assuming this guy goes into the starting lineup, who, whose place has he taken? Well, my, my assumption is taking De La Maya's place. Um, I think De La Maya's made some errors as of late, and I think he's the one that's going to come out. Anibaba, I think, has uh, kind of exhibited some leadership qualities and has kind of bailed out De La Maya yesterday and in some other games. I think Anibaba is going to remain in the lineup, and I, I, as I say, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say he's the perfect center back, but I think he's certainly starting caliber, um, whereas De La Maya has certainly struggled with his, in his second season with the Revs and I imagine he's the person that's going to uh, head to the 18 as a result. Um, in terms of how excited of this signing uh, am I, I, I'd, I'd say I'm pretty excited. If I was to grade this signing, I'd give it about a B plus. Uh, it fills a need. It, it kind of helps him along that back line. Um, he's played at a bit of a higher level, and I think he's going to be uh, kind of taking a bit of a leadership role in that kind of area, um, kind of stabilizing things. So um, I know he's playing at the championship, which I believe Claude Dielna came over from the championship. Uh, some people, I think, have kind of made that comparison. Um, but Claude Gilna, if I remember correctly, was uh, being loaned out a ton. He didn't really play in the championship, whereas this guy was a starter, as you said, the captain of the team. Uh, you know, grew up in the uh, Chelsea youth system. Um, he, I know he played over in the Bundesliga for a little bit. So uh, he's certainly got a lot of experience that he can bring to this team. And uh, I, I think that's just what this team needs. I think they need someone to help them get organized in the back and kind of stabilize things. So um, it's not a great long-term signing. Uh, I will say that. Uh, I know he's 30. He's You probably, in theory, want someone a little bit younger. Uh, but it fills a really, really strong need right now for the revolution. Uh, and as I say, it, it, uh, I, I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself because we've had people come in from uh, the championship before um, and uh, they haven't really worked out like Claude Yelna. Uh, but overall, I, I'd say this is a good signing for the Revs and they, they certainly fill the need. I'm not sure if their work is done yet. I'd still like a left back. Um, but overall, thumbs up for me. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I think that, you know, and I've seen the comparison to Yelna too. I don't think it, there is a comparison. Um, like you said, he was struggling for minutes at Sheffield Wednesday, kept getting loaned out to, to get minutes. Um, Mancini, up until this year, was a regular starter for them. And up until the very end of this year, he was a regular starter for them and a key contributor and you know one of the guys that was always in the team sheet. So uh, I, I think there's a potential for him to step right into a starting role. Um, his fitness, according to Friedel, is, is high because he's gone through a full training with Nottingham Forest. Their season, I believe, would have started this weekend. So he's, he's up there, ready to go. 
Um, and, and, you know, I actually think it's going to be Annie Baba that goes to the bench. I agree with you that, you know, Dale Maya didn't have the best game this week. Um, and that Annie Baba has shown a lot this season, but I, I, I think he's just too error prone and that's led to a lot of issues for the revolution in recent weeks, particularly with the, the high press that they play. Um, he makes up for it with some fantastic plays. Um, but I think the hope is when you bring in a guy like this and pair him next to De La Maya, there's less of a need for that last minute, you know, de- last second defending and, and huge blocks because you, you play more consistent consistently. Um, there's just been too many mistakes from Andy Bob. And I think De La Maya, you know, even though he's made mistakes, um, we've seen in the past that he's capable of playing very consistent consistently when he's right with the, the right center back pair. Um, and, and maybe this will be it. So I'm curious to see how that plays out. But I, I agree with you. I, I'm excited by the signing. Machado signing makes no sense to me. This one actually makes <laughs> sense and fills a need. Um, and, you know, on that note, there's you know, still a couple days left in the transfer window. Um, do you think we see anyone else signed by the Revs? Yeah, and, and I will lead into this, but I just also want to say that I know that the Revs are saying, well, Machado can play all along the back line. And, you know, you mentioned Min City can kind of shift over to right back. I can't see them playing out of their natural positions. I think that talk of Machado playing left back or right back or whatever, I mean, maybe, but I, I highly doubt we see him playing along the back line. I think that's just a depth signing. Well, on, on that note, I think uh, uh, Seth from the Bet Musket asked Friedel about it, and he you know, said, no, we're not looking at him at a left back right now. And, you know, you, you look at his highlight videos and you look at, you know, just about everything about him he's a defensive midfielder yeah they, they said he's versatile but you know there's nothing that i see from you know lineup cards from highlights that shows him playing anywhere else except for essential defensive midfield and you know there's a lot of good things that i can see in highlights which you know, don't tell you that much that, he, that he's done you know playing internationally against teams like brazil where you know, he's you know, put on a good show um but it's been at defensive midfield and i don't think you signed this guy to go play him at right back a 28 year old that uh, you're not going to convert to some other position that they barely played in their career mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I can't see him. I did like, though, they asked Brad Friedel. Uh, he said that uh, Machado can play defensive midfield in three other positions. And someone said, what three positions are those? And Friedel was just like uh, three other positions. Like he didn't even name it, which I feel it's kind of obvious he's alluding to left back, right back, center back. But um, I, I can't see Machado playing <laughs> wing back. I, I think that's just kind of you know, they know there's a need there and they're just trying to uh, quiet that down. But with that being said, the Revs still have a need there. Uh, so I could certainly see them going out and getting, I know, uh, I think Waylon Francis uh, didn't play for Seattle this week. Is that right, Sean? Um, yeah, he, I he hasn't some... been playing much at all lately. He's, I mean, that position is, is gone and there was a rumor that they're about to sign another fullback. I don't know if that was completed hmm. or if that's happening, um, but it was another left back that they were, you know, allegedly uh, very close to signing. So he, I mean, He's expendable to Seattle. I think there's there's no two ways about it. He he subbed on um, at halftime actually in this last game, but before that he hadn't even played since July fourth. Mm. Uh, so if if, if you're looking for a left back in the league, there's a guy that I would think would be available. I mean, I, we talk about Brandon By having a good game, and and you know I, I nothing against Brandon By, but. I don't know if Brandon Bay is the guy you want going forward at left back for the rest of the season. Um, and you know I know they have Dielna Somi also on the bench, also available, but. Uh, that that position does need to be strengthened a little bit. I think I still like Brendan By as a prospect and kind of guy coming off of the bench. Um, and he, certainly with his versatility, you don't want to lock him down to left back. So um, I, I think they can. You know, it doesn't even have to be this big international DP signing. 
Um, you know, I, I remember Brian and I kind of talked about some low, low risk, small transfers that they can make for guys who are already in the MLS that might be able to uh, kind of stabilize and fill that role for their season. Waylon Francis is certainly a guy that I think he was traded for $50,000 in allocation money last season. Um, Seattle would probably give him to the Revs for a draft pick. He's probably a sunk cost for them at this point, and they'd be happy to get rid of him off the roster. So, uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of guys throughout the league that you know, are capable left backs that, you know, the Revs might want to go to a team that's looking to sell uh, and and take on a guy just for the remainder of the season. Um, so, yeah, I, I think in the last few days we will see the Revolution make a move like that. I think the Revs were hinting at another signing, if I remember correctly, but they never made one. So maybe they're still working on a uh, big international DP level transfer. I don't have as much hope for that. Um, I think that um, the the moves they've made are the big signings that they were considering uh, bringing in. Uh, but I, I think the left back position does have to be addressed because uh, I don't think Bra- Brandon Bay is a sustainable long-term solution for a team if they want to make the playoffs. Um, because as I say, if he goes down or if Andrew Farrell goes down, uh, you know, Bra- Bay has to move over there. And then you're bringing in Somi or Dele- uh, uh, Dielna, which – as I say, there have been a lot of questions with them so far, so it wouldn't hurt to go out and get someone for cheap. Look, to me, the, the ship has sailed on Somi and Dion at left back. There's been more than enough opportunities mm. for the two of them to to show that they can play that position at an MLS level, and it hasn't been there. I think Dion has some quality. We've, we've seen it at times, but whether it's mentality or, or what, um, there's just been too many opportunities that the two of them haven't been able to prove it. Um, so I agree with you that Brandon By maybe he's the option going forward, but there's just not enough depth there. I, I, if, I don't think you can be comfortable with, if again, if an injury happens to Andrew Farrell or an injury happens to Brandon Bay. And again, I'm not sold yet that Brandon Bay is a solution at left back. It's been one you know good game um, against the, an Orlando team that seemed to be attacking more down the other side. And maybe that's because Bay was playing well, or maybe that's because they just have you know, better options down that way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's still a very much a position of need. And Waylon Francis hasn't played you know, up to the level that he was when he first came into the league the past two seasons. That's why he's available for cheap. But, you know, if you can bring him in now, he doesn't take up an international spot. He's got his green card. Um, he's a guy that I think was making, you know, less than 200000 So I, th- I think I looked it up and he was making um, 170000 So you take a half-season cap hit at 85000 You know, maybe it costs you a draft pick. Maybe it costs you fifty k in, in, in GAM to make Seattle whole for, for, for what they lost for him. Um, and, you know, if it doesn't work out after half-season rental, is, is it that big of a deal? No, no. And and let me also say, too, because you mentioned Claude Yelna has shown bits of quality. I, I think Somi has some quality, too. He's just a defensive liability. And if there's a one on one, you kind of expect him to be beaten. You know, Claude Yelna, you know, he, he's got a cannon for a leg and he likes getting up and he likes crossing the ball. And, and you know, he's dangerous from all over the field. But he's also going to commit fouls. And when you have really difficult time, you know, defending set pieces, that's going to burn you time and time again. So, I mean, neither of those guys are really people that I think you're comfortable as a Revs fan locking down that left side. So I don't understand, you know, you say, isn't it worth that $85,000 in salary and maybe a draft pick in, in getting another option? Yeah. I, I don't know what the argument is against it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a risk. Sure. But it's not that much of a, of a risk. Uh, it's not, me. it's really not. It's yeah. really not a risk. I, it, it's, I don't know. If, if all it takes is, is 50 K and gam, which would be what Seattle paid for him. And I, you know, I would think that might be it because, you know, it, it seems like he's not going to be playing there. Or or a draft pick, which are pretty much worthless now, uh, outside of the first round. Certainly, uh, you know why why not do it? But you know the other thing too is people they haven't signed an attacking player. Um, their offense looked good 
yesterday, but there have been certainly questions about the offense. Um, and there was talk that you know they, they were working on one other signing potentially. Uh, it didn't sound like that was a done deal yet, certainly, and it certainly hasn't been announced yet. And the window closes August eighth. Um, of course, you can sign a guy after that if they're not under contract with a with another team internationally um, until September fourteenth. Uh, but your options are more limited then. Um, do you think that there's a chance that they get somebody offensive to, to to boost this team's offense and give them more weapons up there as well? I, I'm less, I'm more skeptical on that one. I'm, I think that's a lot less likely. And and I'm going to say what I said uh, on previous podcasts, which is that you know if you're making a big signing on the offensive side of the ball, um, you need to make sure it hits. It needs to be the the right signing. Uh, I'd, I'd rather the Revs not make a signing and ride it out with Teal Bunbury and Juan Agadello uh, and maybe get Kellen Rowe a little bit more uh, in the mix uh, as opposed to going out and signing another guy like Christian Namath who's going to take a big big chunk of salary, take a DP spot, um, and really not be worth what you invest in him. Um, I, I think this team, you know, it, it really hurts your long-term prospects uh, when you go and kind of tie yourself down to a big contract like that or a big uh, a, a big DP like that. So uh, I'm less skeptical on that one just because in recent years they have gone out and get Kai Kamara and Kristen Namath, and it really has not worked out in the end. Um, I think they're a little bit gun-shy. And I think, too, Brad Friedel and Mike Burns know that they have a lot of young pieces on this team and really the likelihood of them winning an MLS Cup, I mean, the likelihood of uh, the Revolution beating Atlanta and going through uh, New York City FC uh, and then going through whoever comes out in the West, um, it's it's a really, really tough task. Uh, and I don't think you want to go out and spend a ton of money to secure the fifth or sixth seed and get knocked out in the first round of the playoffs. I, I'm kind of really skeptical um, about doing that, and I think the front office is as well. So I do not expect to see a huge signing on the offensive side of the ball. I know everyone wants one, but I, I, I can't see it happening. Yeah, I mean, there's there's running out of time there. I think it would be nice for them to bring in some other piece because that, that is an area that Friedel hasn't addressed too much other than Pania, who's been a fantastic addition. Um, but otherwise, he's mostly been been stuck with holdover players there. Uh, but yeah, they are a bit hamstrung, like you said, because the guys like Christian Namath and to go out and potentially do that again um, would be would be worrying if they had another situation like that. Uh, but but with that, do you want to jump to the uh, Twitter questions? Yep, and I'll, I'm going to just kind of kill this one pretty quickly because I think we've actually mentioned it num- a number of times, but uh, any Revs UK uh, who does his own podcast, I think they come out Thursday, Friday, um, he asked us, uh, is by playing left back the best option we have? Uh, I, I said yes, I want to see some more of him in the short term. I think he uh, really did well. I know he he's not able to cross as much as he is used to. And I know Somi and Diana were crossing the ball a little more than he did, but uh, I was overall impressed. I, I would say yes to this question. Uh, your, shot th- your, your thoughts, Sean? Yeah, no, I, th- I think he is the answer there for the short term. Again, um, I don't think he did anything in this game to, to say that he shouldn't be playing there. So that, that for me, is, is enough to give him at least another start. Um, am I sold based on one performance? No, but uh, based on what we were seeing from the other options, it's, it's got to be him. Another quick one that I'm just going to kill off real quickly. Uh, Dan Clark asks us, uh, can you put me out of my New England Revolution misery? Uh, Dan, uh, I'm going to say no, uh, because if you weren't a Revs fan, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. So we can't put you out of our misery. you got to stick with it, and you got to keep tuning in. Thank you for listening. <laughs> they, they are your local team, and I don't think they're going anywhere. So <laughs> the, the, the repetition of the disastrous leads blown uh, is, a, is a tough one to swallow, but I don't, I don't think we can help you there. Someone someone tweeted me after the second game. Actually, I think it was Dan Clark. He said, you know, that that was it's so predictable. This is the most Revs game ever. And then I replied to it after the Teal Bunbury goal and I said it would also be very Revs for them to take back the lead and then blow it at the last minute or something like that. And of course that happened. I mean, it's just so 
that's so revs. You know what I mean? It's just very, very revolution. Um, let's see. So Seth from the Bent Musket actually sent us a couple questions. Uh, how proud would Darius Barnes be of Brandon Bayes throw-in? Uh, I would say very proud. I, I I can't remember the last time we had a long throw-in taker. Sean, do you, who who was it? Darius Barnes. I mean, at the, at the time Barnes was there, Alston was the other guy. So both of those guys had a pretty decent long throw. I think Barnes was a bit more driven and and, and better. But but back then they relied on the long throw a lot. Since then, I'm I'm trying to remember. I feel like there was you know there was somebody else on this team that was half decent at long throws. I'm I'm blanking on who it was. Uh, but yeah, we, to to see By get up there and and you know. My frustration over the years with the long throw was that the team did it way too much and did it at positions like midfield where it made no sense and turned over possession. But when you're in a position like that, it is a great weapon to have when you're right up next to a, the corner flag and can do what Bai did. So, you know, that that was a good thing to see. And I don't think Friedel is uh, as obsessed with doing it in other areas of the field as as what we saw when, when Austin and Barnes were here. Yeah, I think no one was really expecting that either. Right? The goalie was very caught off guard. And I mean, that was pretty poor defending overall by Orlando, but um, first career assist for Brandon Bay, so uh, good for him. Uh, but Seth also asks uh, kind of a transfer window question: um, Who could the Revs trade row two slash four? Um, I'm not sure who the Revs could trade row two. I know that um, Sean, you tweeted out a quote by Seattle that they don't like dealing with New England, uh, which I thought was pretty funny. I know there's a bit of a refu- reputation with Mike Burns, um, but I kind of was going through just some recent uh, transfers. Uh, and, you know, Justin Miram, obviously the biggest one lately, he was transfers for 750 in TAM with a roster spot. Uh, I know Addy went to uh, Cincinnati for $850,000 worth of allocation money, kind of split between GAM and TAM with some uh, future considerations. Uh, and of course, Lee Wynn uh, was transferred back in May in the first window for $750,000 worth of GAM and TAM. Um, overall, I know Roe is not getting minutes, but I think there is still a lot of hype around him. Uh, you know, he's got some he had some playing time in the Gold Cup last year with the U.S. men's team. Uh, I, I still think a lot of teams would be pretty high on him. I think Matt Doyle even tweeted out that uh, Roe and Dielna were would would attract interest from other teams and they were not playing yesterday. So um, o- overall, I, I think if I had to ballpark what they could get for him in terms of Gam and Tam, I'd probably put it around. 600 500 600,000 in Gam and Tam. I think them not putting him in the 18 kind of distresses his value a little bit, similar to Lee Wynn. Um, but I think Matt Doyle had an article at the beginning of the season uh, ranking the trade assets, and Kellen Rowe was the top trade asset on New England. I think he was 33rd or something like that. Um, so, you know, I, I know he's had a bit of a poor season. I think he ranks like 15th on the Revolution in minutes played, um, and I know he's kind of fallen out of uh, Brad Friedel's favor, but uh, still someone's got to expect him to be a bit of a buy-low opportunity. And as I say, I think 500, 600 is, is a pretty fair price tag. I think that actually might be a little bit low. I think you might be able to get 700,000, um, similar to what Lee Wynn got, uh, just based on his age and potential. So what do you think, Sean? Yeah, going into the season, I would have said that Kellen Rowe was worth more than Lee Wynn, again, based on his age and potential, based on the fact that he was getting minutes with the, the national team. Um, is his value now what it was then? No, definitely not. Um, the lack of playing time this year and, you know, really the, the not great play when he has gotten playing time. And I do think that's a product of him not really fitting into to Friedel's system. Um, you know, 
originally I thought that his skill set would translate, but it just doesn't seem like it does translate to, to Friedel's system. And it, you, know, you mentioned the, the Garth Lagerwey quote, um, who's the general manager of the Seattle Sounders. It would seem like that would be one of the obvious destinations for him since he's from you know, Washington State uh, near the Seattle area. Uh, but that, that, that quote that was dug up by uh, Roderick McNeil his New American Game um, was from back in February, and, and they actually was Sounders at heart. The I think it's the one of the one of the sites that covers this, the Sounders um, asked Garth Lagerwey at an, at an event with with fans there. Have you you know about bringing Kellen Rowe as the next you know local guy to come back to Seattle? His response was, "Have you ever tried to deal with New England?" Um, and then he made some comment about the Lee Wynn saga, in which he said you know basically that that's how the Revs operate, um, and, and not in a good way, I would say, in the way that was phrased. Um, so yeah, it doesn't seem like. Uh, Garth Lagerwey has the necessarily the best relationship in, in dealing with Mike Burns and the Revs, um, so I'm not sure how good of an option that would be. Um, yeah, and, and and you know maybe if that was an option, you'd trade him for Waylon Francis and I'll get a lot of allocation money back to the Revs in return because I do think he's certainly worth more than Waylon Francis. Um, but I, I'm I don't know if 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 the question is about you know what players could you swap him for. I'm not really sure. That's always a tough one to to pull a name out of a hat there. Um, other than you know Francis, but I'm not, I'm not sure the Seattle trade would end up working. Uh, but I, I think maybe about five hundred thousand, given what we've seen from in the past, and given his diminished value based on what we've seen this year and lack of playing time, um, might be reasonable. And I'm also not sure how many years are left in his contract, which could could play a role as well. Yeah, I, I was just going to add on too. I mean, we're comparing comparing him to Lee Wynn. It's worth knowing that you know he he's got half the salary as Lee Wynn, so that that certainly increases his value too. He's he's a playmaker you can get on the cheap. Um, I'm sure there's a number of teams too. I'm I'm just kind of pulling up some uh, Western Conference teams, and um, you know there are a lot of teams kind of on the outside looking in. Uh, we talked about Seattle. I'm sure Minnesota, Houston, uh, Vancouver. Uh, you know maybe they could use someone who can uh, kind of spark the offense a little bit. Um, Real Salt Lake only has scored 33 goals uh, in 23 games. Um, maybe they could use someone on the offensive side of the ball who's versatile, can play all all the way around. Um, I'm not going to look at the Eastern Conference because, as we know, the the Revs don't like trading within the Eastern Conference. But um, there certainly should be some demand for him. Yeah, some, somebody, uh, somebody would want Kellen Rowe at this point, I think. Yes, yes. Claudio was a bit of a weird one too. That Matt Doyle tweeted that out. I I can't imagine at his um, salary number the, that he would attract interest without the Revs taking on a lot of that contract well, and, and maybe uh, trading an international roster spot with him too because right. he takes up an international roster spot he's a, a designated player um and he's playing really poorly and he's 30 years old i don't i don't see the the trade value there unless it's essentially a salary you know a, a, a roster spot opener to, to offload him to somebody along with money and and something else you, you'd have to be really weak along the back line i, I can't see he, he certainly has shown flashes of potential and seems to have a lot of tools but uh, I don't know. I don't see it. Um, so let's see. Also, uh, Lost Hope Legacy asks us, and you actually have a little bit more context uh, than me on this one, Sean. Uh, but uh, there was an article in the uh, Sun Chronicle last week uh, about the MBTA working on a pilot program for a commuter rail service to uh, Patriot Place in 2019. He asks if it will impact uh, attendance. Uh, will it increase attendance significantly? That's what he said. Uh, Sean, what are your thoughts? Well, so first of all, I think it would be great if there was a commuter rail to the revolution. I don't know how much it would impact attendance, but the key here is 
everything I've seen about this pilot program is that it's going to be weekdays only, not weekend service. Um, this is mostly, I think, to, to bring employees to, to Patriot Place is, is what some of the idea that I've heard there is. I don't think it would affect, affect the revs at all because I don't think they'd be running trains that would allow people to get to Revolution Games, which has got to be really frustrating and disappointing for Revs fans that they you know see the trains to Patriots games. They occasionally see the trains to big international soccer games at Gillette, and now they might see the, the trains to weekdays but I still don't think they're seeing the, the train to Revolution Games unless somebody has information that I haven't heard because you know the last I heard it was eight uh, eight trains during weekdays. Uh, eight, I think it might just be eight, tra- eight trains a week to, to to Foxborough on the weekdays or something something along those lines. I don't know, but it, it, everything just says weekdays. So, uh, and I, I with that context, obviously, I think the answer is no. But if we were to hypothetically say. It, it would service weekends and revolution games and whatnot. I still have a lot of doubts if that would impact attendance significantly. Um, I've looked at the attendance numbers for the revs and they, they actually were in the 12,000, 12,000, 13,000, 14, 14, 16. And then in 2015, it jumped up to 19, six, 2016, it was uh, 22. And then 2017, it was 19, four. Um, this year we've kind of cut back down to 18, uh, four, uh, 18,400 ish. Um, now we should know they get a lot in September that usually boosts. They get a lot in September. Yep. I was going to say that. And actually some, there is a website that compares it to, uh, I I mean, we're, we're taking soccer stadium digest.com's word for this. Don't bad. Don't, don't get mad at me if this is wrong, but it's basically level uh, year over year to where it was last year. So revolution attendance has kind of been capped out around that 19 to 20,000 kind of mark for the near term. Um, I, I don't know how much more you're going to get. Even as I say, even if you do put in a commuter rail, um, it might tick up attendance slightly. Maybe some more fans from Boston would come down. Um, but I think, if anything, people who currently drive in would just switch over to the commuter rail. I, I can't see the attendance expanding to 30,000 or 25,000. I can't imagine 5,000 more fans coming down on the commuter rail um, if that was the case. So it, it might have a positive impact overall in terms of traffic. Um, I don't know if you're going to get more fans through the gate. I mean, it, it works out well for the Patriots. They think they, they sell it out every time, which is you know great. But when you look at the revolution, how many more fans? Uh, yes, you know, convenience is a thing. There's a lot of people that don't have cars in the city that would make it easier for them to get there. But how many people are realistically going to you know spend the money for the train, spend you know what's probably at, at least an hour back each way to get there and come back? Um, limited scheduling. I don't know, you know how much tailgating you'd be able to do. Um, I, you know... Maybe generously a couple hundred fans more would come out to to the games, but I I, I have trouble seeing more than kind of a negligible impact if if this were to actually happen, where you know it would work for Rev- for Revolution Games. And Tyler asked us a question. We're getting really good questions, really all across the board, and I, I really like this one too. Uh, but Tyler went up and looked up the Revolution schedule through twenty two games over the last four years, uh, and it's actually kind of eerie. Uh, this year they are seven seven and eight. Last year seven five ten. In 2016, six, eight, and eight, and in 2015, seven, six, and nine, uh, and those are the post uh, MLS Cup years. Um, so pretty consistent across the board. Um, Tyler, Tyler, I'll go word for word because it's a bit of an interesting question. Uh, what speaks to the consistent mediocrity uh, from these records? Um, and it's a pretty interesting question because even though the Revolution have kind of entered this new era, um, they kind of seem to be running in place. Um, they don't seem to be improving record-wise, at least. Um, I, I do think that it's a bit strange that, as I say, they're, they're pretty level across the board, but I do think there needs to be a little bit more context to where I think coming into this season, I thought this was going to be a rebuilding year. I didn't think the revolution would be a 500 team fighting for the playoffs. 
Um, and also Brad Friedel's team, these aren't his players. Um, we've certainly seen Lee Wynn and Kellen Rowe, uh, De La Maya, um, some players that we expected to be co- big contributors um, kind of move towards the bench. Uh, and we've seen kind of some new players come in, uh, Pania, Caicedo, uh, Matt Turner. Um, you know, they've kind of come in and, and they're making big contributions. Even Brandon Bay, I'd put him in that uh, uh, category where, uh, you know, the, the future is a little bit bright. So uh, I, I think even though we're kind of, as I'll say, running in place, um, I think the revolution are a bit on the upswing and they're getting a little bit younger and they're putting in a new system in place. Whereas in the post MLS cup years with Jay heaps, it kind of seemed like they're running out the same lineup time after time, the same formation, the same uh, kind of strategies. Uh, and you, you didn't really ever think there was going to be progression. Uh, and uh, as opposed to the MLS cup, uh, 2014 season where they had kind of some youth and they wanted to build off of it. It just kind of became apparent that over those next three seasons, they were what they were. So that's kind of my thoughts that, um, even though those, those records are pretty level, I think this season tells you a little bit of a different story as compared to the previous three. Yeah. I'm with you. It is interesting how close to consistent they are, but there's so much that it's changed, particularly this season over the, over the past few that it's hard to, to lump them all together. I mean, what hasn't changed is the, the level of spending from this team. I think their, their salary has been near the bottom all of those years. Um, but that would lead you to think they'd be w- worse than just, than just mediocre, uh, based on that. Um, but, but like you said, going into this year, I, I didn't think this team was going to be fighting for a playoff spot. I thought this was going to be one of those years where, you know, Friedel figures things out and the, the team slowly changes over to, to what he wants them to play. Um, I think they caught teams off guard at the beginning of the season. I think the high press worked really well for them early on and teams had trouble adjusting to it. Um, as the season's gone on, that's leveled out teams of, you know, good teams, particularly Orlando looked really bad against it, but, you know, good teams have figured out ways to play against the high press and, and, and fight through it. Um, and they haven't done a good enough job adapting. The other thing I'll say is uh, Caicedo and Pania have been revelations for the team this year. They were, they were great finds for you know, Brad Friedel and, and this team going into the season. Um, and that's helped them perform a lot better than, than I expected going into this year. So, um, yeah, we'll see what happens as the season winds down, you know, particularly, as I said, given um, that teams have started to figure out the high press with the exception of, of some of the, <laughs> the crappier defenses in the league they've played against. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's too much that you can take away from the, the relative mediocrity and, and very similar records over the past four seasons at this point. I also want to point out that I think this is the strongest the Eastern Conference has been in a very long time between Atlanta, uh, NYCFC, the Red Bulls. Even I mean, I know Toronto has had a very, very poor season. They're incredibly talented. I think DC United is on the upswing, whereas compared to, let's say, 2015, 2016, those seem like years the revolution could compete if they added one or two more players. Um, and they just kind of underachieved. So I, I'll toss that oh, extra I, thought. I, in I would agree with that too. In particular, I think that the top three teams in the East are far and away better than just about everybody else. And I, I have trouble seeing anyone other than Atlanta or the two New York teams coming out of the East this year. Cause I think the, the, the gulf in between those teams and then what's comes next is, is pretty high. Um, but with, with, I mean, again, Toronto, still has that talent and if they can somehow make a miracle run then maybe they have a chance but the, the rest of the east um i don't think is is in any way too much different from the revolution columbus has gotten better now that they brought justin Miram back and I, they've been overperforming my expectations anyways but yeah those those top three teams in the east i think are the top three teams in the league right now um so for all the years past where we've talked about the west being the the, the top conference maybe with the exception of toronto uh this year i think it's the east that's the stronger conference and yeah that makes it a bit more difficult for the revolution to to gain some traction or actually you know be looked at as uh, any sort of a contender 
So, and, and we'll wrap up with our last question. Uh, and I'm not going to try to pronounce this because this is not a name, but at BFKLIN, uh, in the words of Laszlo Holmes, that's going to be a no for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he asks us, uh, what has Brad done right and what has he maybe missed? This is kind of a good transition. Um, I know a lot of people actually saw someone on Reddit say that uh, Brad Friedel should be on the hot seat. Uh, I think some people are kind of getting a little bit tired. Uh, and we've talked to before about um, kind of his. Uh, tactics about calling out players and, and kind of reacting hangrily at halftime about uh, the lack of energy and, and how players might respond. Um, uh, in terms of what he's done right, I think he is really, really good at knowing uh, what he has in players, uh, knowing what he has in uh, guys like Brandon Bay and Matt Turner that we didn't expect to come in and uh, play a role in this team right away. Um, Teal Bunbury, he knew exactly you know where to put him, kind of put him up top, and a lot of people didn't see that coming. Uh, he he kind of knew Diego Fagundes can play that 10 role. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing too, is I think the transfers Brad Friedel has made overall for the most part has been, have been pretty solid. The, the transfers from the Brad Friedel era, um, have worked out pretty well so far. I know it's pretty early, uh, to say that, but, um, you know, I, I think I saw someone say, uh, on Twitter mention, uh, there, there was an article, I think. I, I'm not going to guess who it was from because I don't want to misattribute it to the wrong uh, source. Uh, but they talked about Brad Friedel's connections in England and, and elsewhere have kind of uh, helped them network and help them in scouting. So um, I think Brad Friedel has done a really, really good job of shaping this roster um, in terms of what he has maybe missed. Um, I, I think we've talked before that maybe he's a little too reliant on the high press. Um, I think his substitutions leave something lacking. Uh, I think we didn't get our first sub till it was 2-2 uh, and Bunbury came on the 73rd minute. And then after that, Machado came on and think in the 88th, the 87th, and they didn't even use their third sub. Um, I, I think like a game like yesterday, you could kind of tell some people were burned out. I, I saw Agadello kind of making less and less of an impact as time go on. Um, that high press didn't really work. doesn't really work 90 minutes through in Orlando heat. Um, so I, I think maybe substitution patterns uh, could use a lot of um, improvement. But he's a first-year manager. I think I'm, I'm kind of willing to give him a little bit of a pass on that one. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of what comes to mind for me. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I don't want to echo everything you said, but the the substitution as far as the the weaknesses, I I would agree there, and we talked about that before. But um, he he again consistently he, he seems to wait a while to use the first sub, uh, sometimes too long, and then we often don't see the third sub, and it goes to what we you know said earlier. Maybe you know Dielner or Rowe were guys that. Uh, maybe in a situation where you're trying to hold a lead, there, there's more of a chance that you might use those guys, but they weren't there. Um, so if you're not comfortable in a game like this of, of bringing on a guy to help hold the lead late, uh, maybe you have to question who's actually on your bench. Um, but yeah, that, that's that's a, a key for me too. Um, and as you said, the the other thing with you know relying too much on the high press uh, in this game, they you know they had a lead and they just couldn't hold the ball. Um, they were under too much pressure from Orlando. They, the Reds finished this game with only 35% possession. Um, they they led for, for, the, for between the fifth minute and the 10th minute. Um, and then they, they led again late in a couple small blocks, I think, after the, the game had been tied. But in, in the, the segments of this game where they were winning, um, they were getting absolutely destroyed on possession. And it, you can't. It's, it's very difficult to be playing behind the ball the entire game when, you know, especially as you mentioned, in a very hot game. We've seen that a couple times this year where this team has looked tired and, you know, they haven't used the subs, but, you know, they haven't been able to keep possession. And that is what leads you to being so tired. So, uh, an inability to, to change tactics and change formations um, once you've gone up up a lead and, and maybe once a team is, you know, less less prop, less uh, troubled by your high press. Um, those are the key things for me. But, you know, I, I would echo the things that you've said um, as far as positives. And then I would add to it that, you know, 
uh, I've been one of the people that has questioned a bit some of the times where you know Brad Friedel has actually gone out and called out players either by name or by you know by by making obvious statements about who he was referring to. Um, but you know, on the flip side, I think that this team has generally reacted well to bad losses, and that they've come out of the gate strong in most of these games after they've you know suffered a disappointing loss like the loss to the Red Bulls. They came out of this game pretty strong, and after this, they suffered the loss. Uh, after they suffered some losses earlier in the season, I thought they've come out pretty strong. Uh, it's been the, the finishing of a lot of these games that's, that's really come back to bite them. And, and to me, that goes to their inability to, to change tactics. And like we discussed earlier, their complete inability to defend set pieces and, and cut out those individual mental mistakes, which aren't just coming from one guy. They're coming from a lot of guys. And when that's you know that prevalent in the team, you know that has to fall on the coaching staff to some extent. Um, but with that, let's jump forward to looking ahead to the Revolution's next game and, and wrap things up here. Uh, the Revolution finally back home after a long stretch away. Their first home game since July 14th, so nearly a month on the road. And they're playing the struggling Philadelphia Union on Saturday at 7.30 p.m. at Gillette Stadium. Uh, the Union are in seventh place, so if the, the Union were to come up, come in here and beat the Revolution, they would leapfrog ahead of them in the standings. And the Union had an opportunity to do it um, this weekend, but they lost 3 to nothing to uh, a Portland side that's in, in great form. Um, but overall, this has not been a particularly impressive Philadelphia Union team, um, and the Revolution will be looking for some revenge against them, given that you know disappointing loss in which they got two red cards to, to open the season. Uh, what's your prediction for this one, and, and do you see any lineup changes? Uh, well, well, first off, I'll, I'll uh, address the Philadelphia Union. It's worth noting, too, that they have a U.S. Open Cup match against Chicago this week. I believe it's the semifinal. Um, they're playing that game on Wednesday, I believe, uh, the 8th. So that would be Wednesday. Uh, so I, I think they're going to have a bit of a tired legs, and I think they're going to be focusing on the Cup um, just because we've talked about, you know, there's such a strong, strong top tier teams in the East that, I, you know, e- even if the Union sneak into the playoffs, I, I can't imagine that they're going to uh, make a lot of noise there. So I, I think they're very focused on the cup and I imagine their starter is going to be playing Wednesday. So that's worth noting um, in terms of lineup changes. I think we're going to see a similar lineup. I bet we're going to see Mancine uh, start over. I will say De La Mea. I know you disagree. I'm going to stick to my guns uh, and say he's going to be slotted in on that back line. Um, other than that, I don't think we're going to see any other changes. I think uh, last week the false nine really worked out well. Um, as I say, I can't speak enough about how much I love the Caldwell and Caicedo pairing and, and seeing them uh, get some touches on the offensive side of the ball. Uh, I think that worked out really well, and I think that that would really work well in a game at home against a weaker opponent uh, or uh, maybe arguably at our level, but uh, I think the Revolution are favored going into this game. Uh, I really like a solid 3 nothing victory. Yeah, and Philadelphia is another team that's been hit over the years for lack of, of summer signings. I don't think they've had much much movement this this summer to, to fix their team. Um, I I think we're going to see a very similar lineup to what we see last last saw this week as well. Um, I think Brandon Bay is going to be back there again. Um, it, you know, if Mancini comes in in time to, you know, if, if he's here at the beginning of the week, if he gets his ITC and he's training all season, I think we'll see him start. I do think it will be instead of any Baba, as we discussed earlier, um, you know, Philadelphia, you brought up a great point with their, their Wednesday game. And I think they'll probably go all out for that. And it was actually interesting today. Speaking of the open cup, um, we saw LAFC going to a Red Bulls game and, and play kind of a B team um, you know, presumably resting for the, for their midweek Open Cup game. Um, so it's interesting that these MLS teams are, are taking the the Open Cup games, the Open Cup, so seriously. Um, but but with that, uh, you know, I, I think the Revolution will come out of this one with a two to one victory. I'm not as confident that's going to be a big win, um, but they they desperately need to get three points from this game because there there are not many home games left in the calendar. Just four after this one, and uh, on paper, this is a a very winnable game for the Revolution. 
And and the other thing too is that I know after every time the Revolution lose a game, there are a lot of people that say, "Oh, season's over." You know, this is not a playoff team, whatever. I think I think next week's game is a huge, huge statement game. Whereas if they come out with one point or a loss, especially with a loss, you, you kind of get the sense that that's the team, the Revolution are, that they still have a lot of work to do. Because if they can't beat a mid-tier to you know below-average Eastern Conference team at home, I mean, that is a that is as big of a must-win game uh, as you can get for the Revolution. Because even though they're they're still fluttering in sixth place, uh, I, I they're, they're hitting the road. Um, they're, you know, and they've been really been struggling too. We, we should have also mentioned too, when we talked about consistency, uh, I know the revolution got a win early in the season and everyone was making jokes that they they've matched their win totals from last year. They still have one win. They're one, one win. I think it's like eight draws and five losses. They, they are really struggling just as much as they did last year about winning games on the road. They're just getting more draws than losses. Um, they, they really lack the ability to just put teams away on the road. So I, I think they need to come out. I think they really need a game kind of like that four nothing game against Montreal where they need a top to bottom, really, really solid performance. If they want to prove to the fans, if they want to prove to the rest of the MLS that they are a team that you can expect in the playoffs at the end of the year. Yeah, and they're they're playing the Union at home this game, and then two weeks later they're going on the road to face the Union again. Uh, so if you lose the the home game to the Union and go zero and two against the Union, um, and then go into a road stretch in which you face DC United on the road, and you know obviously they're them opening their new stadium, they've been really good there, adding Wayne Rooney. You know that's not an easy game for the Revolution to get anything out of. Um, and then if you, if you go into Philadelphia having just lost at home to Philadelphia, uh, you can't be too confident about that either. So I I agree with you that there's been a lot of talk about no this game is the end of the Rev season. Um, it's not there yet they're still in sixth place but uh if if the revolution lose to philadelphia at home uh then i have a, a very very difficult time of seeing what path the revolution could possibly have uh to making the playoffs at this point uh, even with their new signings and even with you know giving them time to get integrated um this game is as close to a must win as you can have uh, your 23rd game of the season um with with you know plenty of games left to go um but before we wrap up did you have any uh, give us give us your twiddle handers and let us know if you had any uh, shout outs for the week uh yeah you can follow me at g johnstone 12 uh you can also follow us uh at revolution recap you can also like our facebook page we still haven't figured out what we're going to be putting on facebook uh but when we do figure it out uh, you'll already have liked us. So please go and like our Facebook page. Uh, in terms of shout outs, I'm going to go kind of off the grid and I'm going to bring up two topics, Sean, that I know you don't want me to bring up on the podcast, politics and professional wrestling. And I want to thank my one of my favorite wrestlers growing up or, or not thank, but give a shout out to one of my favorite professional wrestlers growing up, Kane, uh, also known as Glenn Jacobs. He won the Knox, Mayor, Knox County Mayor's Race this week. Uh, and is kind of jumping into politics. So really looking forward to his uh, eventual presidential run uh, and becoming the second WWE Hall of Famer to ever become president. Uh, long live the Attitude Era. I will uh, ignore that one and, just <laughs> and give a shout out to uh, to Frank DeLapa, who has been reminding us uh, of some interesting events that happened in Foxborough over the years related to soccer. So if you don't follow him on Twitter, I recommend that. Um, and the, the shout out today was for the Revolution's Superliga Championship championship back in 2008 so it's officially been 10 years since the revolution have won a trophy so thank you frank for reminding all the revolution <laughs> fans that it's been 10 years since the revolution have won anything <laughs> so and 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 on that note you can follow me at sean l donahue where i'll probably retreat anything like that that, <laughs> that frank sends out if you're not following him um and thanks again for listening to us today thanks to uh, greg johnstone for joining me as the co-host and we'll be back next week with hopefully uh, a different revolution performance that can provide us with some new insights to that we don't already know from this season. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, everybody.